0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together to a place where we can come, we can worship. Lord, we can sing of your greatness, we can sing of your kindness, of your mercy. Lord, we can offer our thanks to you that we are thankful people. Lord, for the many blessings that we have, we are thankful that you have called us to yourself, that you have redeemed us. Lord, that an unworthy people have been called worthy not because of ourselves, but through Christ. Lord, we ask that as we continue through the book that your prophet Hosea wrote, through the inspiration of your spirit, that you would continue to use that very same spirit to show us what we ought to do, how we ought to walk, the path that our life should follow. Lord, as we see both distress and joy and the pain and suffering, but also the relief. We pray, Lord, that we would see that in our lives as well, that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with us, that your rod and your staff, they comfort us, they lead us. So, Lord, we ask that you today would lead us through this passage, through your word, that we would be comforted by your spirit, led by your spirit, all to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at Hosea chapter 4, and I, I titled this message, you, you've noticed, you don't have notes in your bulletin, totally my bad, that's the title of the message, Who Do You Know? Uh, the title of the message is not, What Do You Know? Because we're not talking about a what, we're not talking about an intellectual set of facts and figures, we're talking about who it is that you know. Two weeks ago, we looked at Hosea chapter 1. We saw the picture of God, a faithful God, and a faithless people, the Israelites. And we saw that God had transformed Hosea's children and Gomer's children, their names transformed that they once were and now they have become. How God transforms our life into what we were, into what he has for us to be, that our life, like Jezreel and Loruhamah and Lo-Ami, has been transformed into a child of God. Then last week, we looked at how Hosea goes to Gomer in chapter 3, and he redeems her out of her promiscuity, that there was a cost to be paid, that Hosea looks at Gomer and says that she is worth the cost. In the same way that God looks at the Israelites and says that they are worth the cost. In the same way that Christ on the cross looked at you and said, you are worth the cost. That we have been redeemed by God for the glory of Christ. And today we're going to be looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6. And... Uh, there's a fly? Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to end up with like a meme with like a lightsaber and like, it's like that lightsaber pastor, you know, it's like, so the whole time I'm going to be like. Uh, But you know that, like when you wake up in the morning and you've you've slept well and you feel recharged, you know, your phone has been plugged in and you pick it up, it's at a hundred percent. You know, you open the blinds and there's like a rooster that's just like, looking at you and, like, your neighbor walks by. Like, everything's just, like, going well. And it's, like, the cartoonish, perfect kind of utopian morning. And it all starts for me, like, with my cell phone. Like, I'm glad I plugged it in because I know I'm going to need it, and it's 100%. For the Israelites, that's how they had been. Everything seemed to be going well for them. In Hosea's day, the king Jeroboam had led people the leaders, the priests, and the people all to a time of flourishing. They were all doing well from the outside. The reason was Israel knew God, and God knew Israel. That was, for them, the reason that they were doing well. But Hosea doesn't offer us a simple history lesson of why israel's doing well and what was going on hosea offers us a giant red flashing warning sign do not enter bridge out ahead turn around this warning sign that hosea offers is the knowledge of god is not the facts and the figures The knowledge of God that Hosea is saying that the people need to have is an experience with God, an intimate knowledge of who God is. It's not the sacrifices that God wants. He doesn't want their rote repetition. God wants their heart. He wants them. And Hosea's giant warning sign to us is, Your phone's at 1%. You thought you were plugged in. You have not been plugged in. They were plugged into their prosperity, but not plugged into God. And Hosea is telling them, you've missed the signs. You've missed what's going on here. Their intimacy with God has turned into indifference. And Hosea lays out, the charges against the people. He starts in verse one and he says, hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. This is chapter four. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. And here's God's case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There's no truth, There's no faithful love, and there's no knowledge of God in the land. They had taken what they thought was a semi decent attempt to do the things without the heart. And that led them toward their own sinful indulgences, their own idolatrous practices and God ultimately tells them that my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In much of the Bible we take this like this steep slalom course straight down to depravity and to sin and to distress but the bottom of the slalom is never where the story of God ends. The Israelites, after hearing this, were in their own distress. And in that distress is when they find their hope. So we're going to take that same walk with them through their distress and see the hope that Hosea offers because it's not distress. If we have a true knowledge of God, if we have truth, faithful love, and the knowledge of God, we don't end up like the Israelites. Let's read chapter 4, the first six verses. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason the land mourns. And everyone who lives in it languishes. Along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, even the fish of the sea disappear. But let no one dispute, let no one argue, for my case is against you priests. You will stumble by day, the prophet will also stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge." Because you have rejected God, I will reject you from serving as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your son. So Hosea is telling these people that the result of what you've done, the result of no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God, is verse 2. Cursing, lying, stealing, murder, adultery, one act of bloodshed. And then in verse 3, for this reason... The reason of you don't have knowledge of God, you don't have truth, you don't have faithful love, everyone suffers. In the land everyone suffers because the people have turned their back on God. There's no truth, there's no love, and there's no knowledge. Having no truth and no love and no knowledge of God leaves them with nothing. They're just a people Out on their own. But it also says to us that there is truth, that there is love, and there is knowledge of God. What God is saying here is not his subjective opinion. What God is saying is this is objectively, verifiably accurate. These people do not know the truth. And for us, that anticipates Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That they have no truth. And we look and say, but there is truth. We know the truth, the way, the life. There is no other, Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. Verse 4, Hosea goes on and he's, looking specifically at the priests. The people of the land aren't off the hook, but he's starting with the priests. And the priests of the day were the people who were educated, they were literate, they were supposed to take what God had taught in the law and give that law to the people, that the people could obey and do what God was calling them to do. They knew and were supposed to have an intimate knowledge of God. So Hosea starts with, let's not get this mixed up. My case is against you, priests. Verse 6, my people will be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And again, God here is not talking to his people about an intellectual, factual knowledge that they ought to be able to recite the Torah He's not telling them that they need to have memorized all of the laws. What God is telling them is, you don't have knowledge of me. You don't know who God is and what God expects of you. And unfortunately, God can't be known through second-hand stories. You know, my dad worked at the juvenile hall for a long time. And many of the kids that ended up in the juvenile hall didn't have a lot of life experiences. My dad would often ask him, have you ever been out of the county? Have you ever been out of the state? Have you ever been to the beach? Have you ever swam in the ocean? And he said that the ocean, going to the beach, was something that almost none of them had ever done. They'd never been to the beach, never swam in the ocean. And so he'd say, well, it's kind of like a pool or a river, but there's waves and it's salty. And if the wind is blowing, the wind will whip against you. And you can try to describe what it's like to be in the ocean, but it falls short of actually being in the ocean. You can't accurately give someone a secondhand experience of what swimming in the ocean is like. And God is saying here that the priests are not even giving that knowledge. They're not even trying to offer gods like this. God expects this of us. It says in verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. They don't have knowledge of God because they've rejected it. To reject the knowledge of God is very different than you don't have the knowledge of God. And they neither have it nor do they accept it. So the priests are out there. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Not know about you, not be able to describe you, but that they may know you. When the Bible uses in in the Old Testament... When the Bible uses that word, it's a Hebrew word, "yada." almost always the context defines how the word is supposed to be translated. And that word most often is translated as a sexual intimacy. That God is calling these people to understand him in a way that is deeper than a handshake. It's deeper than something that we have with all of our acquaintances. He's trying to point them back to marriage. One of the very first uses of the word comes in Genesis. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. The context is very clear that they had an intimate relationship, that they knew one another in a way that nobody else did. And what God is saying is the priests don't have that intimate knowledge of God. They lack the knowledge and they reject that intimacy with God. God offers to know them and they have walked away and told God, we don't want to know you. But God's not done with the priests. In verse 7 The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their honor into disgrace. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for their iniquity. The priests were paid by the sins of the people. The people would say, I've sinned, and I need to offer a sacrifice. And the priest would say, you've sinned, you need to bring a sacrifice. And what God's recognizing is, when the people sin, and the priests get rich, the priests then look at the people, and why would they want to give them any knowledge of God? If the priest can keep the people ignorant, the priests gain. The priests win when the people lose. The more they, the priests, multiplied, the more they sinned against me. They feed on the sin of my people. They have an appetite for iniquity. The people, the priests, who are supposed to be the ones teaching them about God, have a lack of knowledge, and they've rejected the knowledge of God because it was in their best interests. If they continue to reject God and reject the knowledge of God, they get more. They continue to win and they have a growing appetite for sin. As we, as Christian people, look at this, it's easy for us to say, well, our leaders are bad. If our leaders are bad, how can I be expected to do anything different? How can I be expected to do anything different if the priests are leading the people away? If the God-ordained leadership are leading people away, then it's not my fault. I can't be held responsible. But God calls all of us to responsibility. Whether the leaders are good or bad, God calls us individually. Look at verse Nine, the same judgment will happen to both people and priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. We have no excuse for someone else leading us into sin. We have no excuse for someone else doing the wrong thing and for us to say, well, I just did what they did a very common thing that my kids like to use, well, she did it first. Why are you mad at me when they did it too? It never works. And in the same way, it doesn't work with God for the people to say, but the priests have no knowledge of God. The priests rejected you, so why am I the one in trouble? Because God says, The same judgment will happen to both people and to priests, that we don't have an excuse when we come to God and say, I don't have an intimacy with you. I don't have a relationship with you. I don't have knowledge of you because someone hasn't taught me, because someone hasn't given me that. Because God calls each of us to say, I want to know who you are. If I go to my wife Every day, and tell her I love her and show her that I love her. She's going to believe that I love her. And in the same way, what we do, how we act towards God, shows God what type of relationship we expect to have. Do we desire a knowledge or do we reject the knowledge of God? Because in the same way, I can go home and have no conversation, no interaction. And my wife would not think that I love her. If we have no interaction with God, if we have no time of prayer, no time of Bible reading, no time of godly fellowship, we're rejecting the knowledge of God. And God calls us into this intimate relationship that we might know him. Look at verse 10. Continuing now with both the people and the priests, they will eat... But not be satisfied. They will be promiscuous, but not multiply, for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. They will eat and not be satisfied. It's a picture of the priests receiving the offerings of the people. They're eating what the people are bringing to them, but they're never satisfied. Sin does that. You can have all of the sin that you thought you'd want and you're still never satisfied. I used to be addicted to video games and it was an all-consuming addiction. And if you've never had an addiction, it's hard to understand addiction. And my addiction wasn't substances or... But it had a hold on me. I slept and dreamt about it. I went out of my way and pushed everything aside to get it. And it was sin for me. I knew it was sin for me. And it never ended until I finally just said, I have to stop. And I gave it to the Lord and I just had to quit because it was what I desired. And the more I got of it, The more I wanted, and it never satisfied. There was never a point where the sin was enough. See, the sin of the priest was never enough. The more the priests grew in number, the more their sin multiplied. The more we take of our sin, the more our sin multiplies. The farther we walk from the knowledge of God, the more we reject the knowledge of God. God is desiring an intimate relationship with his people, but they are choosing to walk from him. Verse 10, for they have abandoned their devotion to the Lord. It's interesting how that idea of devotion really shows who we are. What we desire tends to be reflective of who we are. I got to quote here from David Mathis. It's not on the screen, but he says, take a careful assessment of any person's habits, and soon you can tell with little margin for error what really captures his heart. Take a careful assessment of any person's habits, and soon you can tell with little margin for error what really captures his heart. What really captures your heart? What habits Where are you devoted? What do you think about? What do you dream about? What do you hope for? What are those things that if I could only reach this, if I could only attain or acquire or be like or have, it shows where our heart is. The people, they had lost all of their devotion. They had abandoned their devotion to God. And often it's a mirror for us to say, what is my devotion? Where am I abandoning my devotion to the Lord? And the downhill slalom continues quickly. Verse 12, my people consult their wooden idols. They have no intimacy with these wooden idols, but they're consulting them. They're going to them as if they were God and seeking to know them. And God says, come to me, consult me. Come to the Lord in prayer and he hears. He's not like these idols who are deaf and are mute and can't speak and can't hear. But he's the one that says to consult him, to come to him. And he's offering this contrast of, you're not praying to me. You're not devoted to me. You don't desire a knowledge of me and you've rejected all of the things, and they're not independent of each other. Rarely are any one of those things independent of each other. If a Christian doesn't read their Bible, they're not likely to pray. If they're not reading their Bible and they're not praying, they're not likely to be in fellowship with God, to be in fellowship with other people, to have a continued and growing knowledge of who God is. When we become a Christian, we receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians, Paul says to walk with the Spirit, to keep step with the Spirit. Jesus says the Spirit will be your comfort or He will be your guide. And having these pictures of we need to know God, we need to consult God. Verse 12, their divining rods inform them. Because God calls the Bible to inform us. And they're seeking these other things to consult and look for answers. They're seeking other things to inform them. They're seeking human wisdom. A block of wood. That the people around them say, Here, take this block of wood that we've carved into an idol and ask it questions. Let it inform you. It's ridiculous. Like, I I see the smile, like, I would never ask a piece of oak to help me, right? That's ridiculous. But we use all kinds of conventional human wisdom to make decisions, and as long as someone says it convincingly, we're likely to believe it. God is saying here, don't let the idols be the ones you consult. Don't let the rods which are supposed to make decisions for you, be the ones that inform you, that God has offered to be the one to consult, to be the one to inform you. And then the reason is a a spirit, in verse 12, of promiscuity leads them away. He goes all the way back to Gomer, and he's reminding them that it was first the the spirit of promiscuity. Chapter 1, verse 2. Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity. Now we're getting to some of those blatant acts of promiscuity. You've rejected the knowledge of God. You've abandoned your devotion. You're consulting idols and asking them what you should do. And God is saying that this is the spirit of promiscuity that this is your spirit of idolatry that's desiring to walk away from the Lord. Then 13, he continues, they sacrifice on the mountaintops. They burn offerings on the hills and under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is pleasant. And so your daughters act promiscuously and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. What a sad turn this takes. They go up to the mountains Because the closer they get to God, they feel like this will be a good thing. So throughout the Old Testament, we have this picture of these high places that are generally not what God wants them to do. And they go to these specific places and they set up these altars and they idolatrously worship whatever happens to be their idol for the day. And Hosea is saying, you've gone up and you've burned offerings and you've picked a nice, pleasant place in the shade because everything seems to be going so well. And your daughters act promiscuously and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. The priests were supposed to lead the people. The people were supposed to lead their daughters and their daughters-in-law. And from the top down, from Jeroboam, who was the king, a wicked king who did the same wicked things that the other kings did, the priests who turned away from God, the leaders, the families that turned away from God. And now we have it trickling all the way down to your daughters and daughters-in-law committing adultery. Who is it in your life that looks at you and says, this is how I should act? Who do you model your life to? There are always people watching There are always people, if it's not your kids, it's your neighbors. If it's not your neighbors, it's somebody's watching your life because they know you're a Christian. Coworkers. I've had coworkers. And as they know more about you, they're watching. And it's sometimes years later that they're like, I knew you were a Christian, and I was waiting to see whatever. I was waiting to see what was going to happen when something happened, when this situation happened. Because they want to know, are you devoted to God? Do you have an intimate and deep knowledge of God? And the sad thing here is they've led their daughters-in-law and their daughters into promiscuity. They've led them to somewhere that they should not be following. Do you get that? The men led their daughters into promiscuity. The men led their daughters into prostitution. I will not punish your daughters, verse 14, when they act promiscuously or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery. For the men themselves... Go off with prostitutes and make sacrifices with cult prostitutes. People without discernment are doomed. Why, God says, would I hold them responsible when you're doing the same thing? Why would I find them guilty if you're the one that has led them to the doorstep of sin? In this passage here from verse 11 to verse the end of 14, it's kind of bookended by these proverbial statements. Verse 11, promiscuity, wine, and new wine take away one's understanding, and then people without discernment are doomed. We have this bookend of promiscuity, wine, and new wine. You know, your misplaced passions cause people to be without discernment and cause them to be doomed, The solution to all of this is a knowledge of God. The solution to all of this is just asking, who do you know? What is it about God that I want to learn? What is it about God that I need to see in my life reflected better so that the people who see me see that I am devoted to God, that I have a knowledge of God, that I accept the knowledge of God? But lest you think that this ends anytime soon. Verse 15 through 16, they continue down. Israel, if you act promiscuously, don't let Judah become guilty. Don't go to Gilgal and make pilgrimage to Bethlehem. Do not swear an oath as the Lord lives. For Israel is, an obst- is as obstinate as a stubborn cow. Can the Lord now shepherd them like a lamb in an open meadow? I've never, like, really dealt with a stubborn cow. I can picture a stubborn cow, and I'm sure that some of you have dealt with a stubborn goat or a stubborn dog or a stubborn cow. We've all dealt with stubborn people, stubborn kids, stubborn in-laws, stubborn... You've dealt with stubborn people. They don't do what you want them to do, and half the time I think it's just because they they don't want you to do it. you're saying, "I just want you to do this one thing." I'm like, "Well, I will do anything else except for that one thing that you want me to do." God says, they're, they're like a stubborn cow. Can the Lord shepherd them?" Which reminded me of John chapter 10, where Jesus is the good shepherd who is trying to lead his people. Let me read John chapter 10 starting in verse 11. Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd." The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now listen to the contrast between the good shepherd and the hired hand. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. The priests are just a hired hand. They don't know God. They don't care for the people. As soon as there's trouble, they're gone. As soon as it's something that's in their best interest that goes against God, they reject God and they take what they want from the people. And there's this parallel here because the priest being like the hired hand, Jesus being like the shepherd, Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. That intimate relationship with Jesus is the same thing that God is asking of the Israelites. Have this intimate knowledge of me. Know me and let me know you. Consult me. Let me inform you. If Oprah informs us, if other Speakers inform us. We've got a problem. Because we're no different than the stubborn cow. We're no different than a wooden idol. God is saying, let me be the one who teaches. Let my word be the one who informs you. Okay, I think that's enough of... Israel's leaders. Well, Actually, one other thing. In verse 18, the end of 18, it says, Israel's leaders, and your version might say her shields, which is the, the literal translation. Israel's shields, the ones that are to protect Israel, fervently love disgrace. And the people that are there to be the shield, to protect the people from the flaming arrows of the enemy, if you will, love disgrace. Okay, they're they're just a wicked a wicked bunch of priests. Okay, that's that's the point. Actually, sorry, one more. One more just to show that they're wicked. Verse chapter 5 verse 1. It's not only that they don't care. Look. Hear this priests. Pay attention house of Israel, listen royal house, for the judgment applies to you because you have been a snare. You're not just neutral. You you don't just not have a knowledge of God. You've rejected it, and now you're a trap to other people. You're a trap to other people who may be trying to follow God. They're wicked. May we never be a people who reject God and do not have our desire and knowledge of him and ensnare other people. Better a millstone hung around our necks than for us to cause a little one to stumble. All right, verse 3 of chapter 5, God says this, I know Ephraim, the end of verse four. They do not know the Lord. Still, God says, I know them, and they don't know me. And then we get all the way down to verse 15 of chapter five. More judgment, more problems. They move boundary markers, which is like an ancient no-no, because you're just like purposely moving your rocks and saying, well, my land is now this far over and the people have just like lost all self-control and they're, they're just in it for themselves. So verse 15, God says, I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. I find it so unfortunate for the Israelites here because they treat God like he's their fire extinguisher. I don't care about a fire extinguisher until there's a fire. I have a fire extinguisher. I have no idea if it works because I don't really care. I just Bought it on Amazon because it seemed like a good idea, and it's under the sink. And if there's a fire, I'll find out if it works. And the Israelites are no different. We have God. We don't really need him, so we don't really consult him or, or read his word or teach it to our children. We don't really obey what he says, you know, but, man, in my distress— then I'm reaching for the fire extinguisher. In my distress, I'll seek God. When I feel that guilt, when I know I've been wrong, when God is the only thing I have left to turn to, in case of emergency, break glass, right? In case of a really extreme emergencies, break the glass and turn to God. But these things don't prevent a spiritual idolatry. They don't prevent the lack of knowledge of God. The fire extinguisher is just there to put out the fire. It's not there to prevent any kinds of fires. It's not there to keep protective safety measures in place. And God's saying, I'm the safety measure. I'm the protection. Don't just seek me in case of emergency and they search for me in their distress, they are a reactive people. They have no proactive seeking of God. They seek God when they need God. That can resonate sometimes, right? I seek God when I need God, I pray when I need God, I read when I need help. God's calling them and us to be a proactive people, to reach out to God, to let God hear our prayers, to inform us, to teach us. Then my favorite part of this section, chapter six, verses one through three. The people have now, before I read, the people have taken this normal speed rail all the way down to the bottom of the mountain and they are At the bottom, they only have sought God in their distress. And here's their response. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Notice the words to me that stuck out. Come, let us. They're individually responsible for their sin, but collectively they've recognized it they've decided that we together need to repent, that we need to say, let us as a nation return to the Lord. Let us as an unrepentant people be repentant. Come, let us return to the Lord. Two are better than one. They can hold each other accountable. They can see whether or not this has been true between them. Let us return to the Lord. And it's never too late. In the distress they've turned to the Lord. How often does the Lord use distress to make us say, come, let us return to the Lord. I know you've been in times of distress and I know that they've caused you to return to the Lord because I've been in distress and it's caused me to say, come, let us return to the Lord. And look, when we do that, for he has torn us and he will heal us. For he has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days. And on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. For he has torn us and will heal us is a a whole nother picture of what God does. If you want to write down... Job 13, 15, it it goes right along with God tearing and wounding that he might heal and bind up our wounds. And then verse three, let us strive to know the Lord. The rebuke and the rejection that they are receiving is because there's no faith, no truth, no faithful love and no knowledge of God in the land. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And they know that. They heard what God said. They're returning to the Lord. And they say, come, let us strive to know the Lord. They want to come full circle and come back to God and say, we see what we've done wrong. We know we were wrong. So let us strive to know you. In 1 John chapter 2, John says this, This is how we know him, if we keep his commands. This is how we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's obvious, right? If you say you love God, and if you say you know God, then do what he says. It's oversimplified, but that's the whole picture that the people have seen here. You haven't listened to God. You haven't done what he says. So don't come to God and say that you love him. Do what he says. Verse six, for I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. God says, I I want to know you and I want you to know me. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And the reward, the benefit, the blessing is the second part of verse three. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. Every day, God's mercies are new. Every day, God will Be there as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. The knowledge of God brings life, like the spring showers that water the land. Where there is no knowledge, the people perish. Where there is no knowledge of God, people are left to their own devices. When there's no knowledge and no truth and no faithful love, we have no salvation. But when we know God, when we desire that intimate relationship with him, when we see Christ in the scriptures, when we see that the reason the land mourns is because there's no faithful love, there's no way, there's no truth, there's no life, there's no hope. But in that distress, God calls to his people. His people hear them and they return. They repent and God, just like Gomer, redeems them. Having an intimate relationship with God, knowing God is like the spring showers that brings life. Not knowing God is an eternal distress. It's eternally being at the end of your rope and searching for and never finding the Lord. The hope that we have as Christians is that in our distress, we sought the Lord. In our distress, we said, I can't do this on my own. I've tried, and I'm just left in my distress. I need help. I can't do this. And Christ offers salvation. Through his sacrifice on the cross, Christ offers a way out of our distress. And all we have to do is return to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord. Come, let us strive to know the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us your word that we might know you. You've given us the ability and the opportunity to pray to you. Lord, that you, through your spirit, through your word, can inform us, can teach us, can guide us. Lord, I pray that we would see the Israelites, that we would see the way that they falter and we would not be the same, that we would... See the warning. And we'd also see the hope of repentance. Lord, you call us to repentance out of our distress. You offer forgiveness. You offer hope. You offer to restore that we might regain that intimate knowledge and that intimate relationship with you. Lord, may we be faithful in that as a husband is to his wife. May we see you as the husband in this situation where you've come and offered protection, offered safety, and offered love. Lord, may we return that to you in a relationship that seeks to know you, that desires what you desire, that is a hope for the things that you hope for. Lord, may we be people that know you and as a result, obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.